I'm black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And welcome to another episode of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? We are delighted today that we have uh, Camp Director Brianna Mitchell joining us and Environmental Educator Michaela Elvie. And we'll get to talking to Brianna and Michaela in just a minute. But David, as is our want, let's chat a little bit about our previous episode. What was a highlight for you in that conversation? You know, that entire um episode with uh, Montega Simmons was, uh, I don't know, exciting for me because Montega is an organizer and a guy who's, you know, on the front lines of of the movement, uh, particularly in St. Louis. And like he was in Louisville while he was talking to us. And so he's he's nationwide with it. So just to be able to get uh, a sort of inside understanding about, uh, number one, why certain moves were being made, but also, you know, uh, what the the long-term and short-term goals were, some of the things that he was talking about uh, with regard to voting initiatives, um, the his perspective on the defund the police movement uh, juxtaposed to when we talked to Detective Leggett uh, mm-hmm. in the previous episode uh, was a, a great counterbalance or whatever to that. So, I mean, I, I, I had so many takeaways. It was it was incredible. I, I really yeah. enjoyed that episode, yeah. My favorite was probably how he closed out the interview by saying his hope for the country, for for maybe for people all over the world, but was for us to all think more creatively about how we Mm -hmm. can be better people, be our best selves. And if I am doing justice to his explanation of defund the police, it was to think about a paradigm shift where policing as we know it or law enforcement as it's currently constructed isn't the best way to help people adhere to the rule of law. Um, As he explained, there's a limited repertoire of responses that law enforcement officers typically have at their disposal, Um, you know, arrest, detainment, and shooting to kill. Obviously, there are many wonderful law enforcement officers, and obviously those three things are not the only tools in their toolbox. But, you know, Montega really challenged us to think about whether the model as it currently exists and has for, you know, 150 years of law enforcement could just, could you blow it up and start all over again? Um, but once again, he. But also, you know, and, and that's that's a scary concept when yeah. you say it like that. But also, I think the main thing that um, I found inspiring was what he's really talking about trying to bolster other areas of the community so that you don't have um, a lot of these types of calls in the first right, place. Right, um, right. Where, you know, you have the community built up to the point where the police only have to respond to, you know, emergency, emergency calls and and not uh, so many, you know, different calls where they would even get bogged down. But the other thing is just people don't feel as hopeless. Uh, People don't feel as helpless. Uh, Communities are more empowered. They're more educated. Opportunities are there for people more. That was very inspiring to me because it's not a thing where right now that whole movement is being, um, sort of characterizes tearing down something, right. whereas what he's talking about is more building up communities and building yeah. up people. And I think anytime you start talking more construction than destruction, uh, then you're on the right track. So Perfect segue to our mm-hmm. guests today. So as I mentioned, Brianna Mitchell is a camp director, um, and Michaela Elvie is an environmental educator that does not capture their biographies 
and or uh, the detail and inspiration that they bring to 2020. So I also want to add that they are the co-founders of S'more Melanin. And so, uh, Michaela, I'll ask you to start and introduce yourself, say a little bit about what you do and what S'more Melanin is, and then we'll hear from Brianna about how the two of you met, and we'll take it from there. So welcome to the show, both of you, and uh, Mikhail, I'll hand it off to you. All right, thank you, Chris and David. So happy to be here representing S'more Melanin. So like you mentioned to everybody, I'm an environmental educator, and primarily what I do is I write environmental curriculum. Um, Right now for an outdoor center, but I have in the past um, for the New York City Parks Department, um, as I was working as an educator there. Um, and my own personal mission really is to connect black and brown people to the outdoors. So that's something I'm always doing and something that I really get an opportunity to do um, through S'more Melanin. Um, I met Brianna uh, actually on a call, and I'll let Brianna talk a little bit more about this, but we were both invited to a call um, about um, nonprofit camps. Mm-hmm. and ways to improve the diversity, equity, and inclusion for camps. And that's really how we first connected and how S'more Melanin was created. So um, I'm just going to pass it to Brianna so she can kind of explain to you a little bit more about that call and how we all met and where S'more Melanin was born. <laughs> thank you, Michaela, and thank you, Chris and David. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, as Chris mentioned, my name is Brianna Mitchell, and I am the director of AF Camp, which stands for Achievement First Camp. And it's a part of an organization called Change Summer. And I get the very unique opportunity to build what we would consider to be traditional summer camps for students who attend a particular charter school network. And so the camps that we build are residential, they're sleepaway, they're sort of out a little bit in rural areas. And the programming is very traditional camp programming, kayaking, canoeing, water sports, kickball, gaga, all of the things that we come to know and love about camp. And what's very interesting and unique and exciting about my work is that the population that I get to build camps for is a almost exclusively black and brown population. And I am a person of color who grew up going to camps starting at the very tender age of six. And so I have a personal connection and love and appreciation for camp and what I think that it does for children. And I spend a lot of my time trying to grow that love in the hearts and minds and communities that I work with, which traditionally the camp world has been a space that has not been very um, well represented. There have not been a lot of black indigenous people of color in the camp world. It hasn't been super receptive, open, or really just made a lot of like intentionality around increasing representation in the camp world. And so I get to spend my time uh, growing the love of camp and specifically camp for kids uh, to a population that has been left out of the conversation for far too long. And so as Michaela alluded to, this summer, the last couple of months has been a very interesting time for all of us. And I think that the summer now has very different names. It has been sort of the summer of racial reckoning. It has been the summer of social justice. And I think that the way that a lot of people have taken to the events that have happened this summer is trying to figure out within the spaces that they move in or the spaces that they call their own, like how they can make an impact or make change or adjustments or really just get involved in whether it's conversation or in trying to incite change. And so that led some individuals who work for nonprofits who are specifically camp professionals for nonprofit camps to host a call where they could have a candid conversation about race and racial equity at camps. And after one or two calls, they very quickly found that the call is very homogeneous and it was really full of white Zoom attendees. And so I think that there was a sort of like call to action, which was to, as I like jokingly like to refer, refer to it as, bring a brown or black camp coworker to our call day. And so Michaela and I found ourselves on this call. Michaela had been doing some work specifically related to racial equity. I had not been, but I am a person of color who is a camp director, which makes me very rare, unfortunately, in this work. And so we uh, found ourselves on a call and we sort of did the proverbial uh, head nod via Zoom that you do when you see another person of color in a space where there are very few of you. And that led us to book and ring to start this project that is more melanin that we've been working on for the last, really the last month or so, which is very crazy to think about. And so we're super excited to be here and to be working together in this very important work. That means a lot to both of us, not only professionally, but personally, which is, I think, is a very interesting uh, intersection. So I have so many questions, but tell people what 
s'more melanin is. And we should clarify, if you're watching the vlog version of this on YouTube, we'll put some links so you can learn more about the work that Michaela and Brianna do and more about s'more melanin. But we're talking about S apostrophe M-O-R-E, which many people think about as marshmallows, graham crackers, and chocolate. And melanin, obviously, the pigment that, uh, you know, the more or less of it you have determines, you know, the color of your skin, your freckles, etc. S'more melanin. Uh, help me out. What's it all about? Yeah, so um, s'more melanin is really, we want it to be a destination for some resources, historic context, and kind of just a space for connectivity. Um, uh, we want to kind of create a space where when you read whatever we're posting, whether it be on social media, whatever we're blogging, you can kind of be like, oh, I relate to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd like you find that sense of belonging. You have that feeling, especially as a black or brown person in outdoor rec camp. Um, but another kind of facet, since it is multifaceted, another thing we wanted to do with S'more Melanin is we really wanted to provide some like history and context for um, some of those feelings or some of those experiences. Um, like Brianna mentioned, this summer, um, you know, has been the summer of social justice and kind of really bringing some historical context that we can all look at from a very objective view. These events have happened. And I think right now, as people are experiencing things, the tension's high, the emotions are high. And I think, um, but I think each of us individually have a moral compass. We know what right and wrong is. And I think to understand some of the injustices that black and brown people are experiencing um, in the world, um, you can do that through a historical lens. You can do that by looking back into history, learning from it, um, and, and building that kind of empathy that mm-hmm. I think is necessary to have some of these difficult conversations and to move forward together. Um, and then lastly, to provide resources, whether that be um, professionals in the camp world um, that have gifts to offer, um, just connecting uh, people who want to have these conversations, who identify as a Black or Indigenous person of color, um, and really giving them ways to either cope with their experiences at camp in the real world or professionals wanting to get resources on how to make their space more inclusive um, and really feel that home and and provide safety for whoever is attending their camps or whoever is in their space um, is really what we wanted to do with S'more Melanin. Um, When I explain it to my friends, I like to think about it as a directory. Like there's no reason I can list 80 organizations that are primarily servicing black and brown people in the outdoors or camp world, and you can't. Like, I want to be able to connect them. I want to be able to connect camp professionals, outdoor professionals that have countless gifts and countless um, skills to offer um, because it's so underrepresented. And um, like Brianna said on that call, it was primarily white. And I think camp is primarily white. Outdoor rec is primarily white. But there are people doing this work. There are people with these skill sets. There are people that... um, are members of this community. Yeah. Um, they're just underrepresented. So really so, bringing that all together. Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned historical context. Why Why is it that the camp, and we're talking about day camps, overnight camps, parks and rec departments, why so white? What What's the deal? I mean, since 1861, uh, when, you know, William and Abigail Gunn took a bunch of their students to the shores of Long Island Sound, and all those kids were white, uh, and not just white, white boys. And then, you know, we had Girl Scouts movement, so let's get some white girls in here. And um, so, like, what what's the deal historically with outdoor recreation or camp in particular, overnight camp, being so Wonder Bread white? I think there's a lot. It's, it's used the term of the kid, it's just used, it's multifaceted, it's multi-tiered, it's very deep, it's also very systemic and systematic as many issues tied to race are in this country. I think I would just speak a little bit to why camps in particular are so white and not necessarily about outdoor recreation in this one moment. I think that there are two reasons that come to mind particularly for me. The first is that after the sort of like industrial revolution and kids were now no longer forced to work in factories and were able to actually go to school and have an education, 
one of the reasons I came to the institution is to sort of to preserve this innocence of children and also to provide a summer escape to really be able to like give kids skills since they were no longer having to like work in factories and, and be a part of this labor force where they could go into the wilderness and sort of like rough and tough it uh, and gain these sort of like life skills. And I think that black and brown children for a very long time in a number of ways, our innocence is not protected. Uh, we are viewed as adults for far too long. We are viewed or regarded as, as adults way earlier than we should be. And so we were left out of this conversation of one, trying to preserve our innocence, but then also thinking that there was any value in sort of providing this additional set of skills or, or um, like wilderness awareness to black and brown children. And then I think that the other reason is that a lot of camps were born out of the neighborhood where people live and systemically, systematically, our neighborhoods are segregated. Uh, many of them still are. Many of the sort of institutions that camps are born out of cater to communities and communities are really segregated and really white. And so the people that were doing the work in those communities, they were wanting to serve the individuals that look like them in those spaces. And we still are struggling very, very dramatically in this in this country, in this nation, and all over with having integrated communities and communities where really there is a beautiful blend and a beautiful mixture, and some places do it better than others. But a lot of camps were born out of communities, and communities have been very homogeneous. Are there camps that are um, specifically geared toward, you know, uh, black or brown children? You know, like, because another thing about... I've been to a couple of types of camps and, you know, one of them was about a sort of coming of age for, you know, young men or whatever. But I remember um, none of that was based on any African tradition at all or anything like that. So me coming of age as a black man was sort of um, I would have to, you know, like sort of adopt uh, another culture. Are there any places, um, you know, that that young black men and black women can can go and you know like sort of culturally come of age uh, in in a way that's specific to them so to my knowledge not many not exclusively um i feel mm -hmm. like a lot of camping organizations or institutions are that black and brown people have access to for many of the reasons brianna mentioned but definitely funds um, money is a really big thing too, not only in like camp as an institution, but also an outdoor rec. Gear is expensive. Um, getting prepared to go away from home is expensive. Leisure time, if you're working all the time, is expensive. So definitely that's another aspect to consider. I think that there is, to my knowledge, one black-owned camp um, in the United States um, that does some of that work. Brianna, you seem a little bit more familiar with it. Yeah, so there's Camp Kupagani, which is Black-owned, Black-operated, and I think that their focus, one, they do bring in, I mean, with the name alone, but they do bring in a lot of work and intentionality around openness and inclusivity and just talking about reason bringing together kids with multiple backgrounds. It's not just about sort of empowering Black and brown children to feel good about their backgrounds, which is part of what their work is, to the best of my knowledge. But the other thing that they do is they do want to provide exposure and a myth tool so that if you don't identify with black and brown, and maybe you don't go and see black and brown kids where they live because they live in white communities, are having an opportunity to experience the joys of childhood, the joy that camp has to offer alongside kids that don't look like them, which really, as we know, just further enriches your experience overall, and it enriches your experience in a very tangible way, but it also just makes you a more uh, sort of open and receptive human, and if we can do it at a young age, why not? And then I think another camp that I know to be true uh, is Camp Atwater. What's very interesting about Camp Atwater is that it services black and brown children, but it's not black owned, uh, which is something else that we find is that there are some camps, and particularly when you think about more like day camp models, so like Boys and Girls Club camps or YMCA camps in areas that are in largely black and brown communities, that they serve a lot of black and brown children, but they're not black and brown owned. And so to your point, David, they're doing a lot of the work with the, there is a space now for the children, but what is left out is a part of the camp programming being a celebration, a conversation, or working in elements that correlate to race into camp programming. Mm -hmm. so that's really interesting to me because, um, and I guess either of you can answer this, but I, I, 
I first want to throw it to Michaela and ask whether, um, in addition to the things you've mentioned, which are perhaps barriers to entry for you know, a black, indigenous person of color to be part of a day or overnight camp, one could be expense, one could be, you know, as Brianna said, the camp camps generally, overnight camps especially, sort of founded in communities and the camp itself may not be in that community, but it draws from that community. And to this day, um, you know, our biggest cities are enormously segregated. And, and then there's also the question in my mind is, the, what, what about traditions of doing outdoor activities, right? And, and it may be different, um, and I don't mean to put obviously all black indigenous people of color into one category and say, do they like being outside? You know, cause like some white people do. My wife is white from Serbia. She's the least outdoorsy person I know. Um, and mm -hmm. so there we go. But I remember standing in O'Hare airport outside one of the stores that sold electronics and the, I think the GoPro Hero 6 was out. And so there was a display and there was video and, and, and I was watching it and I was standing next to two other guys who were watching it, both of whom were black and we're watching the promotional footage shot with a GoPro and it's, it's, it's all white people, um, surfing, climbing Mount Everest, you know, and with a GoPro and one gentleman says to the other gentleman, that's effed up. And, uh, his friend said, you know, something like, absolutely, brother, there's no way you would get me on, like, on Mount Everest or anything like that. Um, and so they were just, you know, there wasn't any more to the conversation than that. But what I took away was, at least these two people felt like, to the extent they understood uh, the experience of other black men, none of the things that you would do with a GoPro would be of particular interest. So forgive my being so naive and asking such a broad and potentially insulting question, but what do you as an outdoor, as an environmental educator, Michaela, what, what acceptance and what resistance do you encounter from uh, people of color who you're proposing that they spend time outdoors and do adventurous things like the two of you have done, gone hiking and whatnot. So what? Um, yeah, black people like doing outdoor recreation. Thank um, you. For <laughs> yeah, the record. Yeah. For the record, yes, black people do enjoy outdoor recreation. I, um, from working with learners of all ages, I will say that black and brown youth are more open to going out and trying new things. And I feel like some, um, of my peers uh, are some older learners who've already kind of been conditioned by society that that is something that they are not supposed to be doing. Um, so that's older, interesting. So there may be like a generational or age cohort effect. Yes, there I will get, you know, black and brown campers, 11, 10, 9 that are like, oh, I'm gonna go per poke a worm and I'm just gonna get in the lake and stream and I'm all about it. And I love this. And this is my first maybe um, earliest experiences with being outdoors and in nature. And once I've overcame that initial fear of, oh, this is unknown, I'm all in, you know, knee deep in the mud, having a blast with my other campers. I know that was my experience as a kid. Um, and being a counselor, like a camp counselor, that's something that I've also seen in campers. Um, when I think about like people who are now my age or, you know, into their adulthood, um, there's a little bit of hesitation and it's more so I think because, you know, a lot of the same reasons why people are kind of nervous around police. Black and brown people are a little nervous around police. There have been people that have gone and tried to enjoy the outdoors and have been attacked, um, thrown racial slurs, mm -hmm. um, been uh, denied access to some of these remote areas. And so um, sometimes people when they're coming from an inner city or they've heard some of these things, they think the middle of the woods is where you go to die, 
Uh, I mean, yeah. like, without being dramatic, they really think, I don't know what's out there, and I don't know if it can hurt me. And I think um, that's why something that we don't really talk too much about is that, like, safety, that feeling of belonging, it goes a very long way. Um, because when you do take those steps and you participate in maybe skiing for the first time or hiking for the first time and reaching a summit, and you're like, this was crazy. I hated every step of the way. But now that I'm here, this view is amazing. And I would do it again. Like th those little moments of achievement, those little moments of um, therapy, like, oh, my God, this is such a calming place. There's no loud noises. Um, all the nature sounds. I've learned so much stuff. Um, the benefits that we know exist from being outdoors. Um, it, it's, it takes a bigger step, I feel like, in some cases for black and brown people to to get there. So um, what's your pitch? Really appreciate can, I, can I say something really to follow up on that? Yeah, yeah. I think there are a couple of things that Michaela said that sparked a lot of thought for me. I think that one, talking about how there seems to be a little bit more uh, or less reticence and more intrigue for younger generations to sort of like take forays into the camp world. It's because, as sort of I think Chris, you alluded to, is that at that age, sort of haven't been acculturated by the rhetoric that is being painted about what the outdoors is and who it is for. And when you think about as you get older and you learn more about history and you learn more things, I think that unfortunately, as we can recognize, like rural and outdoor spaces haven't always been the kindest to people of color. There have been scary things that have happened in those spaces. And as you get older, as you learn more, as you hear your parents and maybe they didn't have such an open experience with the outdoors and that starts to trickle down and it starts to shape. It's also not being supported by any representation in any advertising film, uh, any initiatives working at targeting and like bringing more representation. You start to sort of like this rhetoric starts to take place unless you have had your own experience that and then the other thing I think is like when I think about like going skydiving or doing something while it's an adventurous I mean for me being daring is like walking through Nordstrom and someone not asking me where to find an item and people thinking I work there right like sometimes being a person of color it is an adventure to make it from a <laughs> in your everyday life yeah. and so sometimes there seems a little bit of a risk element of like okay people are dying when they're going jogging am I going to uh now jump out of an airplane and like enjoy this el this right. element or summit and i think and i'm not saying that that is uh gonna preclude people or like it, it it oh it makes sense so like that's why it's so white but i think that it's just knowing the context is, is what michaela has yes, is mentioned. yes. Like, those things are real and it takes people having their own experience or someone that they trust to bring them in or any sort of like organization doing work to make sure that people start to see themselves in these spaces to really start to start to ameliorate that Mm -hmm. But that's a real wow. concern or whatever, too. I'm just say my experience. And I was saying I grew up in Missouri and even coming here to Georgia. When you go, most of the areas where you would go camping and things like that are areas where there you may be the black person there when you go. But there are not a lot of black people there. And it's not like they say, hey, Welcome, black person. Let me show you these fine woods. Not like that. It's not like that at all. It's like, what are you doing here? You are you lost? I mean? And and it's yeah. And and you need to get lost. It's very antagonistic. It's not. It, it that's been my experience, and I'm I'm not even that old. And I'm saying that my parents' experience was more hostile than that, and more. So I'm saying there. I think there is a a sort of diluting of that but it's not completely diluted at this point my daughter went hiking today and when she said told her she was going hiking uh you know on indian seat trail or whatever it was they went and she was going with one of her white friends i was like i need i got very military i need sit reps i need them at certain intervals i need to know you know what i mean really otherwise daddy's coming you know and with guns blazing because i don't and that's and that's it's knee-jerk. It just is because I know where she was going. It's it's not a thing where I immediately felt safe that she was going. So there is, uh, you know, some of that thing too. And I think uh, maybe some of that's changing now with some of the initiatives like what's going on. But it has not necessarily been, you know, been the case where you say, well, this is definitely the safest place for me to be as a black person around all these trees. <laughs> wow. In these yeah, friendly white people. You know, it, it, and so, you, know. you talked about the meeting where the two of you 
uh, Brianna and Michaela met and the invitation to be part of the conversation about how can we have greater racial, ethnic, cultural representation at summer youth programs in this country and around the world. And I will uh, leave out all identifying information, but I sat in on a meeting uh, of people who were also interested in the same thing about 15 years ago. And the discussion, and these were all white people, um, the discussion was, a, again, well-intentioned. How can we get more representation? And the person who was chairing the meeting said, the point is we need to advertise to communities uh, where there are people of color. Uh, because, you know, of what you said earlier, Brianna, a lot of camps are drawing from communities simply by word of mouth advertising. And, um, you know, there are a few that can advertise in publications, but, you know, print ads and internet ads all cost a lot of money if you want a lot of people to see them. And it occurs to me listening to the two of you that none of the, the conversation was all about where will we publish advertisements. None of it was, so do you think when we do put an advertisement for a summer camp in front of, you know, a Latinx mom or, you know, a black dad that this, this light bulb is going to go off and they're going to, uh, thank you for reminding me that summer camps exist. I will now enroll my child. No discussion whatsoever of any of the historical or cultural barriers or, you know, I mean, most of the Latinx parents that I've spoken to uh, who, who's, kids go here at, the, at Exeter where I teach, the notion that you would have your child spend several weeks of the summer away from the family is just antithetical to their cultural upbringing. And then that you would not just have them out of the family, but you would have to pay for that? Like, you're going to pay $7,000 to have somebody else take care of your baby? And, you know, it's just, so I'm, I am calling out my own ignorance, you know, a decade and a half ago and, you know, collectively for the group I was meeting with, this is not a question of people not knowing that the institution of camping exists or doesn't exist. Um, there's a lot more to it. Tell us about the event that you have planned for tomorrow. When people listen to this podcast or watch this vlog, this event will have occurred, but surely you have others planned, but, but tell us some about what tomorrow is. Okay, so tomorrow we are having a town hall meeting. It's sort of a recruitment meeting um, because Brianna and I do a lot of talking with each other and a lot of thinking about what all small melanin can be and who can be a part of it, who we're serving, who can benefit from it. And so what we want to do tomorrow is we want to have a recruitment town hall for a black and brown leadership advancement and camping coalition um, that we are shorthanded calling black. And the idea is that it'll be a space um, where people can come, whether that be an individual or an organization, like can send representatives, um, but where people who are black or brown can come and network, um, move up in camping. Like Brianna said, there are a lot of camps that do service black and brown youth, but they're not necessarily owned by a black person or the operations manager isn't a black person or the recruitment person isn't a black person or any of the senior leadership team, they're not people of color. So what we're hoping to do with black is really create a space where people can connect um, and can gain those skills or have access to those positions um, that will put them in places of leadership so that there will be increased representation at camps for the black and brown youth attending, um, but even the entry level black and brown staff hiring, um, having that support and that mentorship. Um, but ultimately, and I think what I'm most passionate about is that connectivity, that space, that 
this is how I feel because I'm the only black person on my organization. And what are you going to do about that? And that rant space to really get out some of those feelings that when you are, you know, a speck of pepper in a sea of salt, you have to suppress. You have to say, like, even though I'm feeling these things and they're very real in this moment, I know my audience. <laughs> and I know that I need um, like-minded people and people experiencing similar things for me to actually express myself um, and for me to get that feeling of belonging and for me to come back to work <laughs> and for me to want to advance and stay in camping as a career. Um, so that's a, like what I am really passionate about, creating this coalition um, to be definitely a space of healing and connectivity, but um, we do want to be focused. Rihanna always focuses me. I'm like the visionary, like, ooh, let's do this. Ooh, I want to do this. And Brianna's like, let's focus. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's nice that we're working um, together. Uh, so those are really what the event is catered to, getting people that are interested to show up. And we have a fun-filled, uh, pointed and targeted agenda um, mm -hmm. for the meeting. And hopefully we can just grow the people that we reach um, and provide um, whatever whatever we need, right? We're really here to talk about our community needs in this moment. I think if I could piggyback off of that. Yes, please. Brianna is the former uh, director of operations for our school, and so she is a little bit more of like, but what's the goal? What's the metrics? What's the outcome? How do we measure it? <laughs> and Michaela's like, I want it to be a sense of community, which is beautiful. And so in speaking to that, I think that one, in this time for me personally, since we are remote, right? Like very few people, some people are now going back to work in some capacity, but we are experiencing so many things in this world collectively apart i think that it feels really really important to have a space we, we kind of liken it to like a digital base camp where people can come together and re-experience a sense of community that we might have lost because we're not going to gyms we're not going to churches we're not going to like our neighborhood outings where we used to be able to get communities or like for me I'm not going to my well-read black girls book club where I can go and just like have a space once a month to talk about things because those things are sort of like on pause or canceled or just being done in ways mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily fostering connectivity and that feels super important right now so building that and then the other thing that's really important to us is to I believe someone alluded to this earlier is to talk about our experiences as being people of color in the camp space without feeling the need to sort of like downplay them or uh, sort of dilute how impactful they were for us, right? Like we can talk about mm -hmm. the fact that like every time I'm at camp, someone talks about the fact that like I have to put on sunscreen because they've never seen a black person get sunburned before and have to have conversations about why I wear a hairnet if I'm going to get in the pool, right? And it's like little things that we often feel like we can't actually have these conversations because they get trivialized so often. Mm. Uh, and having a space where we can really talk about these things like, yeah, like this feels important to me. And like, this feels like something that I want to talk about and doing that in a space that is safe where we don't for once have to do so much of what our work is and so much of what our existence is of being minorities in the society, which is downplaying how things impact us and diluting the way that, that we feel about them mm -hmm. in a positive way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's going to be pretty good, though. Um, has the They're response awesome. been, uh, been you know, like good as far as are you, you guys seem like you have like really great expectations for it. So I would imagine the response has been really pretty overwhelming. It has overwhelming is definitely a great way to describe the response. Um, we were kind of like, OK, let's start a blog. What are we going to talk about? I don't know um, mm -hmm. what was probably a month, like six weeks ago. Um, and that has grown to, you know, like we're here on a podcast talking about what we want to do. Um, more people are just hearing about us, um, reading our work. Um, it's led to so many other opportunities and growing because I think that the need is there. And um, it, it's very apparent when we, we put ourselves out there like, hey, we're small and this is what we want. Everybody's like, oh, good, because, <laughs> because I've been wanting this and I didn't know where to go or um, somebody who is following us on Instagram reached out and was just like, okay, I need like kind of advice. Like if I'm going to be here, who's doing this type of work or where, where are this is a safe place to go and things like that. So there's definitely a need for it. And the response people are like, oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of uh, first, like first summer or seasonal staff um, are like, oh, great. Like a space that I can connect with people and get mentorship. Um, I, you know, like I, this is my first exposure to camp and I really loved it, but I don't 
necessarily see myself represented, but I do want to continue and I don't know how to do that. Um, so creating this space, people are like eating it up. It's as if we just put it like we just poured more melatonin on like clay and it's just being absorbed by it. Um, awesome. So it's been super overwhelming, but super positive and um, amazing, really. I think something that like about this time that I have not experienced before is that when people are looking at what we're doing and they're looking at our work, I think that people are trying to figure out where can I support in a way that isn't, for example, like a white person dominating the narrative about the need for representation in camp. It's like, what what can I do to support you two who have a connection to this work that is very real, that have work that you want to do? And so we have been so fortunate that like people have really sort of seen um, the value and have really started to analyze like a space for them, like where they could, where they should push in and where they shouldn't. And I think that that awareness is something that does feel very new and very um, akin, or not akin, excuse me, but like feels very correlated to the time that we were living in. And so like we have people like the Summer Camp Society who are saying, this is what we can do. We can put you in connection with these people um, because we actually recognize this isn't our space to do this work. It is your space to do this work. And here's how we're going to help you do it. And so the reception has been very overwhelming, but also it, it does feel it does feel different. And I think I hope I can see for Michaela when I say that, like, it makes us excited about the fact that, like, things are getting old. We're working on it, guys. We're working on it. Like, we're getting we're getting. Old. And that's what I was going to ask you. I was I was like kind of curious as to what your thoughts on uh, why now? Like you guys have talked about you've been going to camp since you were, you know, like little girls and, and now, you know, as as grown women, you spent all this time in camp. It's not even like you just returned to it. So, and you're not alone. So it's like, um, like now uh, uh, kudos to you for, you know, what you're doing as far as Bring, letting everybody know about all the resources that are there and, and, and every part of this. But I'm just saying, like, are you curious as to or do you have any insights as to, like, why there's not been, like, a real initiative? Like like when Chris was saying earlier, people talk about it, but then, like, what's being done? We've been needing to get, you know, kids connected to to outdoors and you know for generations and so why what what's different about now or this time i guess in history that would make it different than than before why it has not happened up until now do you know what i mean like why is something like this being started in 2020 it, you know what i mean my initial reaction is just to say people are ready I think people mm -hmm. on all sides of the table, right? Like if it was a round table, everybody who's sitting at the table, I think is just ready to really get down to the nitty gritty. They're mm -hmm. ready to feel heard. They're ready to speak. Um, mm -hmm. They're ready to, to take action. Um, they recognize that, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion are things that are so necessary in camps um, and can only enrich and benefit the, the camp experience for everybody. Um, and, you know, I think there's also been a couple of attempts that haven't really resulted in the way that they were intended to result. And so they're like, why didn't that happen? Um, and I think that since we're all ready to really, um, do the work and really be a little bit more reflective about those experiences, why it might not have worked, you know, Chris, thank you for sharing your story about mm -hmm. that you know, that meeting you were in 15 years ago. But I think like those experiences right now for a lot of camp directors, camp owners, camp professionals, um, put right beside everything that's happening in society, I think they're ready. I think they're like, we gotta do something. This is yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. we've tried before and it might not have worked and really reflecting and digging deep and thinking, but why didn't it work? What are the, some of the barriers for to getting these communities access um, and that safe that level of safety, right? Um, what are systemic issues? Because um, we, it's very clear that a lot of the barriers are systemic and kind of intertwined, right? Um, so really analyzing it from like a systems view, from an organizational standpoint, and really digging deep, like looking within in their hearts um, and just being ready, saying like, all right, we're doing this. 
we're doing this and we're going to mm-hmm. put all of our efforts into it in this moment um, where we might have felt short before. Um, I definitely think that the social and political climate is a big part of the push. Um, but I also think that seeing a lot of other organizations take the charge and run with it is motivating. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I know Brianna and myself have kind of stepped into this role to really be that destination that is for melanin. Yeah, David, I think we can't, uh, it is not lost on us that this project was born out of one of the worst sort of, uh, ongoing periods of racial injustice this country has ever seen. And it is not mm-hmm. lost on us that like that is sort of like to your point, like why now? I think that now in 2020 it is like no longer accepted. I think one of the things that people were doing when they were looking around and people really started to look at representation, right? It was like, let's actually look and see like what are we doing? Like who is it? Who is here? Who is at the table? Who is a part of this conversation? And when we looked around the different spaces and we saw spaces that had serious, serious dirt, if any, representation at all, it's it's just no longer acceptable. I think that is something that's happening with the summer. It's like, actually, it's just no longer okay. And people are holding organizations, institutions accountable to the lack of that representation. And so it is, with that comes to Michaela's point, a sense of readiness to do the work. And I think that this, it has also created uh, or instilled, reignited really, I don't think it's ever left, but a passion for people who are in this space to do the work in the spaces that they're in. And so it is like not lost on us if it is happening now and it is happening this summer. And we can be perfectly honest, like there, if the, the endorsements and the support that we're getting when we had gotten this six months ago, it probably would have been much harder to have a lot of these conversations. Um, some people are like offering, yeah, we'll feature you. And people, and, and we hadn't written a word yet that we were two people. <laughs> like uh, you guys get that we just started this, right? Like, no, 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 mm-hmm. we're gonna, you have, a, you have our endorsement. Exactly. So I, one of the things that, is, I mean, it's brilliant that the stars aligned and the two of you met and and clearly your skill sets and your strengths complement each other. So I can only imagine, you know, great things are to come. And I, I wish you luck with the, you know, the town hall tomorrow. And I am also struck by what Michaela said about I think the way you put it was when you know when people look inside or when people look in their souls, um, they see something different now. And I'll I'll speak just now for myself and not representing anyone but myself. You know, I mentioned that meeting 15 years ago, and I think um, nothing struck me then. Um, and if if you'd stopped me outside the door as I left that meeting. Uh, and I'd been invited as the token mental health professional, like help us think about this, um, that, you know, of course it feels embarrassing now to say, well, if either of you had stopped me outside the door and said, so, so Chris, you know, like the meeting, um, you know, do a little soul searching, like what else besides advertising? Uh, I'm not sure what would have occurred to me. What I think uh, occurred sometime after and has occurred for a lot of white people, but again, speaking just for myself, this summer was along the lines of what Ibram Kendi speaks about when he defines being an anti-racist. So not it's not enough to uh, give to a, a charity that serves under, you know, traditionally underrepresented minorities. It's not enough to refrain from uh, racial epithets, you you actually have to do something more and some of the heavy lifting and yes, some of it's uncomfortable and uh, you're going to have to profess some ignorance and it's, you know, it's not going to be glamorous if, you know, if you're a white person to, you know, say um, there's a lot that I need to do if I want to contribute in a more meaningful way to positive social change. And to put a very fine point on it, you know, again, historically, another experience that I had, and I'll, again, leave out all the identifying information, but going to a fundraiser where people were all white and celebrating their wonderful fundraising that they had done, 
And I thought, now this is meaningful change because the money was going to support youth development programs um, and sponsorship for uh, people who were mostly black, some Latinx, um, and you know that happens in the communities that this particular charitable organization serves to uh, correlate pretty directly to you know a low socioeconomic scale. So you know again, it seemed wonderful. Looking back on it now, it seems really not just superficial, but in a way kind of sickening. Not because these uh, people were assuaging whatever guilt they had by raising money and giving it to you know young people who otherwise wouldn't be able to participate in these wonderful youth programs. Um, but here's the kicker, and I only learned this on my way out of this sort of gala because I naively thought that what folks were raising money for was for these black indigenous people of color, these youth, to attend those people's programs. No, they were raising money so they could attend other programs. I was like, uh, what am I missing here about you know, you got almost all the way to the finish line and then didn't have the guts to actually cross it. Like, you know, we'll raise some money for you, but not to come to our program. And, you know, this was, again, 14, 13 years ago. Um, my hope is that when people look in their souls now, based on, you know, this summer of social justice, that it would occur to them instantly that you can't just fundraise and then you know send people off in another direction that this kind of true integration is going to mean a lot more than giving away scholarships am i wrong about that or can either of you comment on where we go from from here again well-intentioned people um but falling short of the vision that the two of you have. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that's so interesting about in particular camps is that if you want to ask the vast majority of individuals who would consider themselves to be a camp professional, they would say about how do you feel about racial equity or racial justice mm. or diversity or minorities, you would overwhelmingly get, oh my gosh, I care so much about it. It's so important to me. This really matters a lot. And that is also something I think that is a little bit sort of, um, that's not uncommon for people in the camp world, right? Like, that is something that is definitely like uh, a tie that binds for people who work in the camps. But then when you step back and you look at like, the proof in the pudding and the lack thereof, or you look at the representation, or you look at their camps, or you look at on pretty much every single level of lack of representation in terms of camp ownership, camp directorship, camper serve, or camp staff, and then camper serve, there is huge chasm between what people will tell you ardently and then like what actually exists. And I think that Michaela and I recognize that that is one thing that feels very unique to the camp space in particular is that so many people are very passionate and excited and exuberantly will express it. Oh, I, oh my gosh, this is so important. Mm -hmm. um, but then that's where it stops. And so I think that one thing that we have talked about is like one, how to not only recruit, like it, but this isn't like a like a a numbers effort. It actually is about the quality of the experience for the whoever it is that are there. They could be one family of color at your camp, but like, what are you actually doing to make that child feel like they belong and that this is a place for them? Yeah, yeah definitely, Brianna. That sense of belonging. Like, I just as as you're talking, Chris and Brianna, I'm just sitting here thinking. I'm like, have you? You know when you have that favorite aunt and it's because you know when you step through the door like you could just kick up your shoes they got the food already made you know where you have a space but then you can go to like another relative's house and you like tense up when you get in the doorway and you maybe sit on the couch because you don't really know where you're supposed to go um it's sort of that feeling right like if camp is supposed to be a space away from home you what types of things are you doing in that space to really make it feel a home and make that person feel a part of, and not like, not ostracized 
like more not like oh you're the one person of color so let me be in your face and let me make sure you have the things that all people of color need because you need them right because you're a person of color um but more so to kind of create that camp culture that says oh yeah yeah no problem you know and almost like it's almost like it's normal really normalizing um the the cultural norms that people have individually and saying yeah yeah, yeah no problem like because this is an inclusive space we're this we're an understanding camp and um, have the, the structures in place to um, deal with some of the challenges or um, overcome some of the barriers that maybe some youth staff of color might have um, in a camp setting. So, so yeah, nail on the head, Brianna, with that one. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, we're getting close on time. Let me just, I, this is a sort of two-part question. I'd be curious to hear what both of you have to say uh, in, in response to it. I just like to know. Um, so I, I I get what you're trying to do. So I want to know just in a, in a few sentences what you would say uh, to me as a black parent who you know might be a little reticent about uh, sending my son or daughter off to sleepaway camp, um, and what you then also would say. Um, to sort of an organization that's that's so white that may say out of their mind and their in their mouth, yeah, yeah, I'm all about getting people of color here, but but the action falls short. So what would you say to you know energize them to you know we're talking about creating that space and bringing the people together. Michaela's been talking about that. What would what would you say to each of these groups that would bring them together? I would imagine you would have to say something you know, specific to to each group. And this is, of course, in a blanket world where we're talking to all black people and then talking to all white people. But you know, but still, what would what would you say to me as that parent? But also, what would you say uh, to the camps that could probably bring uh, those folks together and, and have more people of color in, in the camping space? Brianna, do you want to take the question about the parents? Because I feel like you talk to way more parents than I do. <laughs> sure. So that's a great question. Um, one thing that we are really sort of like looking to do with some more melanin out of our personal desire to bring more representation to camps is like sort of creating our own like some more melanin seal of approval of like, listen, uh, I'm not going to tell you, David, that every camp in the country is going to be the place for your child to grow and to thrive and to spend the summer having a time where they can focus on being a kid and not being an other, right? But there are some camps that are doing that work and there are some camps that care about getting it right. And here are those camps, right? So it would be like supporting you in that process. But then it would also be giving you sort of the tools and the conversations that you can start to have with your child before they go to camp. Like this might be a little bit different. Like we we generally tend, it's, it's so interesting when you start to look at like, especially if it's like a sleepaway camp, living spaces, right? Of like, you're gonna use a washcloth and people might think that's weird you're probably going to wear shower shoes in the shower and not everybody does that. Come on. Like, right. You are 100% going to put on lotion after every single time that you get out the shower and people might not know what to do with that. And here is how you feel confident in the things that we do at home and how you let that carry you into these new spaces and how you will start to have conversations about things that you do and why you do them or how you say, you know what? I don't really like feel like having a conversation about this right now. I would love to just go on my merry way, put my bonnet on and to get in the pool. And you, mm-hmm. we support you in having those real conversations with your kids. And then we also have to be very honest about like, listen, David, one of the things that are really important to myself and Michaela, especially as we have been kids ourselves at camp and also camp professionals, it's sometimes the areas in the communities that we're in, and like it may feel safe physically, right? Like some of the camp spaces that we're in in these very rural places. And so I would say talk to the camp directors about mm-hmm. what do you do if a business, if you go, if, if there is a camp field trip to a movie theater and the attendants at that movie theater say something disparaging to one of your campers or you service to one of your campers. Like, are you going to pull up for your campers and like either no longer patronize this business or have an accountability conversation with the owners of this establishment? I think that you need to have clear conversations about, so great. So like, what if, and like, you know, it to happen, but we recognize that we live in a world where things like that happen. And so what if it does happen? Are you prepared or are you just going to tell me, I'm so sorry that this happened. And so 
we would really just support you in preparation for one. Like these might be the things that your child might experience. And this is how you can learn how to have the conversation or not have the conversation because it's okay because you're 11 and you don't need to tell people all about your race if you don't want to at this time. You just want to go. <laughs> and then the conversations to have with the camps themselves. Mm-hmm. And so telling you which camps we think are making the strides and taking the steps to get this right. And like, we would feel comfortable sending our, I don't have any children, but I have a, a niece who turns one tomorrow. And when I think about the we're doing, I think about like, where would I want to send my niece to camp? It's so cool because the, you know, the dangers are not, uh, you know, coyotes and black bears and whatever else. It's, mm-hmm. it's the experience um, inside the camp, outside the camp. And for S'more Melanin to be preparing those institutions to receive in a in a thoughtful and informed way uh, new campers whose backgrounds are different enough that it's either going to uh, ignite prejudice during a field trip as you said um, or you know I think prompt a lot of questions that at some point that campers not going to want to respond to. Uh, there's there's some there's some complicated sort of education and conditioning of the field uh, that that is required. So I'm I mean I think it's just awesome that that's happening. Absolutely, Chris. And I think as an environmental educator, one of the things I tell people all the time, whether it's me trying to get like my mom to go out hiking and camping with me, or like um, people that come up to me and ask me questions about why I'm even interested in it. Um, I usually tell them that the most, the scariest thing that's out there in the outdoors is the people, <laughs> not the yeah. animals. Animals yeah. don't attack unless you bother them. Um, you know, it's really the people that's the scariest things in the woods. Um, yeah. And um, so to kind of speak a little bit on your question, David, about what I would tell an organization or a camp um, that's really trying to, you know, really take a dive in um, inclusion and create a space that's really welcoming, I would kind of make sure that they're constantly reflection, reflecting going on um, at the staff level, um, at the senior leadership level, um, and really hoping that they are reflective um, in terms of uh, what campers' experiences are, but also have some of the resources to have conversations about race, um, about cultural differences, um, about ability, all of the things that we think about when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, Mm -hmm. and really getting their foothold in that conversation. Because if, you know, the camper and the parents prepare as best they can to send their kids to camp, if the staff there aren't able to further those conversations and create a space where they can be kids and can participate um, as a kid and bring their whole selves and they're not worried about, like Brianna mentioned, their otherness, um, then I think that's super important. So something that myself and Brianna are working on are kind of those guidances for organizations through, um, I'm not sure if you've read the blog post that we're working with, New York and New Jersey's ACA mm-hmm. publishing a five-part blog series that really offers guidances to organizations, camping organizations, um, in ways that they can prepare their staff, train their staff to receive diverse group of campers, um, and also some leadership in how maybe they can start to create an organizational model that supports differences. Um, so that's part of the work that we're doing right now and how to have those conversations with organizations because really, I think that's the first step. Well, I wish we had even more time, but um, this is a perfect point to end on. And I'll mention the website so people can read your blog, www.acanynj.org. So New York, New Jersey.org. Um, and people can then enter S'more Melanin in the search bar. Your Instagram is at s'more melanin are there other outlets you want to have people know about you can email us uh if you would like to get in contact with either of us our email address is more info s-m-o-r-e-i-n-f-o at melanin.com great all right it's more info at smoremelanin.com. that's fantastic well we've been speaking today on i'm black you're white now what 
with Brianna Mitchell and with Michaela Elvi, and we're so grateful that the two of you, the day before your big event, took time out of your schedules um, and helped us um, circumvent some audio quirks at the beginning to share with us your important work and your vision for the future so that anyone who believes that, you know, spending time outdoors or in a more structured way, community living away from home in a beautiful natural setting with a recreational premise has value regardless of what a person's skin color is. But we can't just advertise uh, in black and brown communities. We need to prepare the institutions that have for a century and a half catered to white kids. And so now let's, let's, let's work on changing the institutions so that um, those young people feel just as welcome um, as someone with lighter skin, less melanin, uh, to use our, our parlance for today. Uh, so thank you, thank you both so much. I hope that you come back and join us because we want to know, um, you know, in the future what progress you're making. And um, I want to thank you again for your time. It's just been precious. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel, Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristhurber.com.